You're listening to audio from the Cathedral Church of the Advent in Birmingham, Alabama, a church with a heart for the gospel. Find out more at adventbirmingham.org. We are at the end of our uh, series in Colossians, um, Christ is Enough. Uh, what I hope to do this morning is just kind of keep repeating, um, you know, good or ill, the way I typically I listen to a lot of uh, the classes that we put up online with, uh, at, at, from the Advent and other things as well, especially with series. You know, I plan a lot of repetition, kind of moving forward, but backtracking each week as well, both for those of us who are here in the room looking around. I know several have been in here for most of the weeks, but you miss one, so you kind of hear it again. And, um, and just have a couple of phrases, I hope, that's my hope, um, that kind of stand up and stand out that maybe, perhaps, by the grace of God, in a month's time, in six months' time, in two years' time, there might be a phrase from the book of Colossians or a phrase that comes out of this, like, Christ is enough. That'll be a word that the Lord brings to you. Because remember, one of those principles that we've been following is it's not, um, it's necessary. It's necessary that God speaks a word to you. His word that is for you, spoken to you in a very personal way. So that's a, my humble hope, but it's actually a pretty audacious hope that the Lord, by His grace, that's not a filler. I have a lot of verbal fillers, and that's not one of them that the Lord, by His grace, would let um, a word emerge out of a series like this um, that stands up and out and is brought back to you um, at a time when you really need it, when I really need it. Something like, um, we are delivered from the domain of darkness uh, and transferred into the kingdom of His Son. Um, Or something like, your life is now hidden with Christ in God. And that becomes a word of comfort. And we're going to talk about all this again. Or something like, and Craig was very much in in this vein in his sermon today. Um, uh, It's not enough for me to have a vague idea of God as some sort of mildly beneficial gas. Is that what Craig said? Um, That it needs, I need God with skin. I need Christ on a cross. I need not the unknown God that I can't know because he's so other. I need something that's breathing and living and nay, dying for me um, in a time that's most desperate. Um, Or the word of promise, not a word of law of command. Don't be anxious. Stop being anxious. You know you're not supposed to be anxious. Stop worrying. All you're doing is praying to yourself. Don't do that. Stop. Where that transfers, again, is a word of grace that moves to a word of promise in the same way that he did Abraham. Um, Your children... Uh, even though you're an old man married to an old woman with a dead womb, your children will outnumber the sands on the seashore and the stars in the sky. And here, here's a promise. Be not anxious, for I create the very thing that I speak. Non-anxiety. So that's kind of where we are, so now I'm going to say it again. This time with all of our props. Um, that if the Lord should... Um, bring something like this back, where you run across this piece of art, or something like it, a Caravaggio, um, that Cumbies helped kind of interact with the last couple of weeks, where the light, coming from an unknown place with the stark difference of the the chiaroscuro, the light-dark place, with all 
of the emptiness. I think that's significant. We talked about that the first uh, week where almost half of the painting itself is empty. Something like the ordinariness of life. The emptiness, as it were, um, of, I think just the, not so much the emptiness of life, where it's sort of like in that, that existential angst, but in that sense of, uh, I get up, I get a cup of coffee, I go and just vapid. transitory, vapid, yeah, reading life backwards, Ecclesiastes, vanity, vanity, vapor, vapor, um, just... Life in so many moments as we go through, it's just here. And yet we begin to ask the question, what does salvation feel like? What is it to be salvationed? Trying to turn common words, at least churchy words, around just a little bit and ask the question, what does salvation feel like? What is the experience of being salvationed? And we went into Galatians, into a, I think it's 113. You, you will be transferred. You have been transferred from the domain of darkness, and this hence took me to Caravaggio, light, dark, into the kingdom of light of his son, with this transference of this question of what does salvation feel like, where Christ comes in, and we looked at Michelangelo's hand, with the recreation of uh, the vivification of Adam, where Adam's being brought to life, with that mirror, and then all the hands that begin to appear everywhere and all over, and how that looks so odd. And you have one hand, maybe all three of these, in fact, are Matthew. This is the calling of Matthew. Maybe this is us. Maybe this is, in fact, all of us at different points in our life. Maybe even sort of coming in antagonistically with Peter, the two people that have swords, and they're wanting to sort of come to blows, very dandified, very sort of, you know, in the common dress of the day is what this would be. So again, the ordinariness of life, and not so much the dressed up. But then, you know, the preoccupation the sense a little bit older, and then the old man, as it were, looking back in on himself. It's like, I remember. I remember at the moment of salvation, at the moment of transference from dark to light, from death to life, um, being brought in. And what that was like, me? Really? Or is he pointing here? Him? Really? Wherever it goes. Again, a humble, audacious hope that um, somewhere, as you go back, and now, you know, certainly encourage us to do this this evening or tomorrow morning. Read the letter of Colossians straight through. It's four chapters, 20 minutes, maybe. Um, read it straight through and let the Lord's sifting begin to happen. Where you come through in this, you have been transferred from the domain of darkness into the kingdom of his beloved son. Where there's this sense of, really? Really? Do you know who I am? Do you know my history? Do you know my past? Do you know my uncertainty about the future, all my, my, my disappointments, my, my fears, my hopes, my dreams, my, my loss. Um, do you know me? And he comes in, I do. And I'm about to, in that pregnancy of the hand, I wish I had the blow up. You know, it's as if he's almost going right there. It's almost at that moment of, you know, jolt. Um, almost at that moment where the transfer is about to happen. There's a pregnancy here. And to remember that again, because we come back to it again and again and again in this ordinariness of the transitoriness of life, in the places that we need God to do something most desperately, that's where he is. Um, which takes us then to another part. Again, just repeating, kind of bringing this back. And, um, and the places that we need him most desperately, he shows up. 
He reveals Himself. And we need God to show Himself because an unknown God, Jacob wrestling the dark figure, um, uh, one of the things I'll remember from the series is uh, uh, sort of it's dangerous sometimes to read too much into the text, and so I always want to do that a little bit carefully, but the text invites us in Genesis, um, in, the, in, in the Jacob narrative, to ask, who was Jacob expecting when God showed up? He wasn't expecting whoever, you can't even tell where God starts and Jacob starts and all this. There's mix-mash where Jacob on the lamb, on the run, because he's the swindler and chasing the blessing his entire life, chasing, 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 lying, lying, lying. He dupes his uncle. His uncle dupes him. He dupes his uncle again. Before that, he had duped his brother three times, twice. Uh, now he's, he, it's finally catching up to him, and he's on the run, and Jacob is left alone. You know, it's that great, great haunting line, that sentence out of Genesis 32. And then the unexpected happens. Um, he's met. He doesn't know by who. He thinks it's his brother, and it's God. Not enough to have some vague idea of God as you understand him, or God, an unknown God, or an unpreached God, and the phrase that also a humble, audacious hope. An ungospeled God is, that won't help. It doesn't help us at our death. It doesn't help us in our anxiety. It doesn't help us in our fears. God, we need God to gospel himself to us, to do himself to us with his gospel. And then we go here, away from the unknown God, the topsy-turvy, um, the, the wrestling with God. You know, it's like the vision quest and all that stuff. I can sort of gin myself up, so to speak, into that, that uh, uh, let's, let's go out and do a 40-day fast in the wilderness and really sort of meet God um, face to face. And that's, that appeals to some of my flesh. And yet God says, not enough. That won't do it. That won't do it. Meeting me in the wilderness won't do it unless I meet you. And God says, I have the initiative. I am coming down. And he comes down and he hangs himself on the cross. And so we see John the Baptist over there. We've looked at this. I look at this twice a year. You know, and so if you're in my classes, you see the Eisenheim piece. You know, the long bony finger, great phrase out of Karl Barth one of the 20th century theologians, one of the titans, hero of Mark Genelette, and so Mark's put him, you know, maybe more sympathetic to, to Carl. Um, uh, the long bony finger of John the Baptist with the blurred Latin behind him. I must, uh, out of John, I must decrease so that he may increase. And he even has the finger sort of increasing disproportionately in size as it moves away towards the just elongated, this enormous Christ hanging on the cross. It's coming reminded us. Uh, uh, this painting is hung in a hospital, was hung in a hospital originally for those who are suffering from skin disease. And you can look closely, and it's just grotesque. The word there even means hidden, grotto. Um, just this grotesque Christ identifying with those who are dying of the disease. And they look up and they say, well, well, maybe, possibly, perhaps, maybe, possibly, perhaps, I might have hope. If I'm dying of what he's dying of, um, the word, the promise, might be for me. 
that if I'm hidden within him, uh, if I'm hidden with Christ, this dying Christ in God, then maybe I might have hope. Then maybe my life, my death, will be okay. Um, and so we come through here, and this is you know, the image of the invisible God. You want to know who God, God is here, hanging on the cross. And we went there to the rest of chapter 2, into the beginning of chapter 3. Didn't really use this. It's kind of new. Um, with, a, with a beautiful phrase, For you have died, and your life is hidden with Christ in God. Um, is it 3.3, Colossians 3.3. 3. And I remind myself, it brings to, uh, uh, again, out of, Genesis, out of Exodus, uh, uh, where Moses says, Let me see your glory. We're back here, by the way, when, Joseph, when Moses says, let me see your glory. He's like, you can't see my glory. This is my glory. My glory is to die for those who are unworthy. But that's what Moses says. Um, but God says, you can't, at least not yet. Um, you know, not yet. Uh, but I'll hide you in a cleft. And there you can see my backside. And then Augustus Top Lady um, wrote one of the great, great hymns of the church, Rock of Ages, Jesus Christ, my rock, uh, my fortress, uh, the one, if I can hide in him, then I'll be okay. The shelter in the storm, um, the place where, where I'll be safe, the harbor from the tempest. Um, uh, and Augustus Topley just completely, in a sublime way, took that and ran with this beautiful image of this prayer, this plea, rock of ages cleft for me, split open, side. Um, let me hide myself in thee. Um, hide me in you, and then I'll be okay. Um, we looked at that. Again, as you go back, humble, audacious hope that you re- as you reread Colossians, or you encounter life on life's terms, or you hear a sermon next month or next year, or in five years, a song or something else comes that maybe something will, will bring you. Next time we hear this hymn, you might remember Colossians 3. And then to come to this uh, idea, we looked at this last week, where the way I hear Scripture, the way Scripture, I hope, hears me, interprets me, and brings me back to itself. For Scripture is living and active. That was another one of the principles. It, um, uh, it has hands and it grabs me. It has feet and it runs after me. Um, it has a voice, and it pours itself in my ear, and it does something. Um, Lazarus, come forth, and the dead Lazarus, four days dead, for he stinketh. He is beyond hope. There is no swoon. This wasn't a spontaneous um, uh, resurrection or a spontaneous, what's the other word? Not a resurrection, but a resuscitation. Um, uh, he was four days, the cells had died, and they were putrefying. He stinketh. That's the reason for that sort of detail. Four days. Uh, Then, God's glory to love the unworthy. Um, God's glory to bring life to the dead um, comes forth. And we call that, it's a funny word, promise. Um, Contrasted to the law, Lazarus, come forth. He's dead. The law has no power. But the word of promise which brings on its back the very thing which is spoken. That's where we read something out of, a, say, Colossians 4, some places here, which we hear as command. And I say, well, I can't do that. And God says, I know. But hear this word, not in your flesh, but in my new, 
in, 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 with your new heart, with your new ears, with the new spirit which I put in you. Hear it there and begin to do the things um, as, you, as your flesh doesn't notice. Do the things which I've given you to do, to love and serve um, with a gladness and a singleness of heart. That idea. And so this word of promise, and we looked at this place out of Isaiah, because I'm still struggling. If somebody has some, I'm very open to this, because it won't be the only last time I talk about it. An image, and it was a, it's not a good one. It's this black ink or this oil from the X-Files. I tried to bring that, where it's this idea of an alien. I know it sounds, oh, I, don't, I don't really go into those either, but, but the idea of an alien, it's always outside. It's always extrinsic. It's not native. It can't be me. It's alien. And so it's the outside which invades in. And the X-Files, the show I used to watch when I was in my 20s, they had this, this ongoing subplot. You'd pour this ink, this oil, and it would just you know, kind of run around because it was living, and then it would get absorbed. And you're like, ooh, and do-do-do-do. You know, and the X-Files theme music would come on. It was very spooky as I was eating my rice. Um, uh, 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 exactly. So um, uh, this alien... And, but the Bible speaks of it all the time, especially in the prophets, where it's like a dry and parched land and water comes and the water just soaks it up because the water is life and it just comes in one place out of Isaiah. For I will pour water on the thirsty land. I will pour my spirit on your offspring, on your children. I think this is really beautiful. And they, your offspring, your children, there's a simplicity here that I just find so moving. Um, and they shall spring up among the grass like willows by flowering streams. This one will say, I'm the Lord's. <laughs> and another will write on his hand, the Lord's. Look, see, I mean, that's totally what I did when I was in fourth grade. is just write things on my hand and sort of, you know, it's just so beauty. There's such beauty in that simplicity. I belong to him. See, it's on my hand. Um, uh, or as Paul said it, this idea of promise, the thing that wasn't is now God gives life to the dead and calls into existence the things that do not exist. It's a profound, profound word right there at the end of Romans 4, um, in the middle of a really complicated chapter. That's not a simple, that's not a simple chapter. Uh, I'm, not trying to, I'm not trying to dumb that down. That's a, that's a very, it, it requires all of us, our, body, our bodies, our minds, our souls, our spirits, our, our hopes, our dreams, our fears, over a lifetime to come into the book of Romans, and in particular that part. Um, but perhaps this audacious and humble hope, that'll be a word that comes to you. Um, that look, God's in the business of giving life to the dead and bringing into existence the things that do not exist. That's hopeful. Or, this is supposed to be funny, amare ex nihilo, which translated in English is making love out of nothing at all by the theologians at Air Supply. Um, it's better when you put it into Latin. Um, but I, I ruined myself this morning because I thought of that. And I've been making love out of, no, out of nothing at all, out of nothing at all, out of nothing at all. Out of, if it wasn't just sung in the 80s tune, there's something to that. Making love out of nothing at all, nothing at all, nothing at all, nothing at all, nothing at all. It just hits us over the head that that's how God does his work. He doesn't say, well, I can work with that. Let me recycle that. Let me rehabilitate that. Out of nothing at all, he brings life. Out of nothing at all, he brings beauty. Out of nothing at all, he brings hope.
and confidence and courage and uh, us, this church, the community, the community of saints. So that's where Colossians went. And then it brings us to, I think, is that all? Yep, it just brings us to today. We're now just, and this, I'm actually on time. This is kind of what I hoped would happen. Just like five, six minutes left. We read um, the end of the book of Colossians, um, where it speaks of, a, of now the people formed out of this, all of this idea being transferred, uh, having Christ given himself for us as the visible expression of the invisible God, our lives hidden with Christ in God, the word of promise, which brings into being the things that were not, the things that did not exist out of nothing at all. And he continues just to shape us with his living and active word as, uh, as the Bible alive is speaking. And so let's read. Let's read the end of, um, of chapter, uh, uh, the end of chapter 3 and all of chapter 4. Uh, a warning. Uh, Romans is the only other book which is, has a longer sort of epilogue. Uh, where Paul goes through and he names all these people. I counted, I think it's 11 people that he names. A lot of whom, like he names Mark, who wrote the Gospel of Mark, and Luke, who wrote the Gospel of Luke. It just earths it in such a, a really compelling way where you start to realize um, these are real people. Um, uh, somebody named Demas uh, who deserted him later, and he has a, a word. He says, and if Mark comes back, welcome him as one of you because Mark and Paul had a falling out and Mark kind of followed Peter. This is all there in Acts, which is crazy. It really is one of the apologetics, the defenses. If you wanted to make something up, you wouldn't, you wouldn't put your dirty laundry in the book, so to speak, that's going to last for 2,000 years. I mean, it puts the dirty, stinky socks right in there. It's like Peter and Paul, they disagreed. And, 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 uh, and, and, and Mark went with Peter, and, and uh, uh, Timothy went with Paul, etc., and so forth. Well, Paul and Mark came back. And so he has this word, and he says, And if Mark comes back, welcome him as one of your own. It, it's okay. We've reconciled. And so it's got those kinds of words. Again, making love, making friendship, making community, bringing people back together in Christ. Um, it's all in that. So, so let's read this, and then we'll have a time to, uh, to maybe interact a little bit. Wives, submit to your husbands, as is fitting in the Lord. Husbands, love your wives, and do not be harsh with them. Children, obey your parents in everything, for this pleases the Lord. Fathers, do not provoke your children, lest they become discouraged. Bondservants, obey in everything those who are your earthly masters, not by way of eye service as people pleasers, but with sincerity of heart, fearing the Lord. Whatever you do, work heartily as for the Lord and not for men, knowing that from the Lord you will receive an inheritance as your reward. You are serving the Lord Christ, for the wrongdoer will be paid back for the wrong he has done. There is no partiality. Masters, treat your bondservants justly and fairly, knowing that you also have a master in heaven. Continue steadfastly in prayer, being watchful in it with thanksgiving. At the same time, pray also for us, that God may open to us a door for the word to declare the mystery of Christ, on account of which I am in prison, that I may make it clear, which is how I ought to speak. Walk in wisdom towards outsiders, making the best use of the time. Let your speech always be gracious, seasoned with salt, 
so that you may know how you ought to answer each person. And now comes the epilogue. Tychius will tell you about all my activities. He is a beloved brother and a faithful minister and a fellow servant in the Lord. I have sent him to you for this very purpose, that you may know how we are and that he may encourage your hearts. And with him Onesimus, our faithful and beloved brother, who is one of you, they will tell you everything. They will tell you of everything that has taken place here. Aristarchus, my fellow prisoner, greets you, and Mark, the cousin of Barnabas, concerning whom you have received instruction. If he comes to you, welcome him. And Jesus, who is called Justice, these are the men of the circumcision, in the words Jews, among my fellow workers for the kingdom of God, and they have been a comfort to me. Epaphras, who is one of you, a servant of Christ Jesus, greets you, always struggling on your behalf in his prayers, that you may stand mature and fully assured in all of the will of God. For I bear him witness that he has worked hard for you and for those in Laodicea and Heropolis. Luke, the beloved physician, greets you, as does Demas. Give my greetings to the brothers at Laodicea and to Nympha and the church in her house. And when this letter has been read among you, have it also read in the church of the Laodiceans, and see that you also read the letter from Laodicea. And say to Archippus, um, see that you fulfill the ministry that you have received in the Lord. I, Paul, write this greeting with my own hand. Remember my chains. And then his last word, grace be with you. So how do we come to this? Um, in two, three minutes. Um, that clock is That is fast, isn't it? Yeah. So, okay, good. So, thanks. Um, so we've got all day. <laughs> um the first section, um, you know, I'm not, I'm not trying to gloss over this. Uh, uh, wives, husbands, fathers, children, bondservants, masters. Um, very similar to the book of Ephesians written about the same time. Ephesians a little bit longer moves through here. Um, submit to your husbands. Um, I think it's important we go back to Ephesians 5.21. Submit to one another out of reverence for Christ. This idea of submission, mutual submission. Let's bring Luther into the game. The freedom of a Christian um, has two prongs. We are free from all, um, uh, not subject to no other person. Our freedom is completely free, Galatians 5.1. It is for freedom that Christ has, Christ has set us free. And then at the same time, and Thomas Cramner picked this up, in whose service is perfect freedom. Um, in the service of Christ, we, find, as we, we, we submit and serve Christ and other people, we find perfect, finished, complete freedom. And so there's, we as Christians are perfectly free from all, subject to none, but also perfectly dutiful servants of all, subject to each other. And that alignment, that sense of military term, of order, alignment, of, of place, of mutuality, of reciprocity. Um, this is often a section called Rules for Christian Households and Workplaces. Um, that's how it fits. It's not a word that um, uh, says when that's out of alignment. So as a counselor, I say this. Um, a woman that's being abused, for instance, doesn't stay in the abused, I mean, physical, sexual, verbal, whatever else, that's not a word here to say you need to keep submitting to your abusing husband. Because the word to the husbands, husbands, love your wives, especially in Ephesians, as Christ loved the church, giving himself up for her, 
washing with water and cleaning and presenting her as holy and blameless. Now it lapses into Christ's language and not not God, not 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 human language. Paul does in Ephesians, like I'm doing now. Um, love your wives. Don't be harsh. Don't embitter them. Don't don't press them uh, into places where you know is wrong, where you know they're going to be in a place of that's outside of alignment. Because um, you know, remember promise. Because you know, Christian, you know how things are. Because I've put that in you. And so that's where Paul's coming in these rules for Christian households. This reciprocity, not as a word of abuse, of abuse, of wrongful use of some sort of position, quote-unquote, of power. We could also look to the Trinity, where Christ, who is perfectly equal with the Father, and yet at the same time perfectly subservient to the Father. It's that Trinitarian math which Paul also wants to bring into the equations here. Wives, submit to your husbands as is fitting in the Lord. Husbands, love your wives. And children, obey your parents in everything, for this pleases the Lord. Fathers, um, do not provoke your children, lest they become discouraged. I don't think the omission of mothers here is somehow... I think it's an overfind if we say that, that mothers can't provoke their children. But I do know this, and I don't usually talk about myself, um, uh, but... Maymay is so much less likely and when our children were children to have provoked them. And I would often find myself, this is true confession, I should cover this up. <laughs> I would do the thing I didn't want to do and I'd be like, you know, why am I trying to sort of needle my five-year-old daughter with like some sort of position of power because I'm sort of, you know, can see the whole and try to confuse her so that she becomes exasperated. And that and it's like, no, no, it's come to me all the time. It's like, why are you doing this? It even says like, father, don't provoke your children. You know, don't exasperate your don't, don't exasperate your child. Um, and I would do that all the time. And maybe it's like, stop. <laughs> you're right. You're right. You're right. It's an overfine to say that mothers never do this. Um, uh, for lots of reasons, we'll get into here. It's just a word, and and it's a word, you know. You could also say, you know, husbands submit to your wives as fitting in the Lord. Wives love your husbands. Don't be harsh with them. Uh, children obey your parents and everything. Mothers don't provoke you. I think it's okay if we do that. But the word does say this: um, children obey your parents, and fathers don't provoke your children. This alignment, this, this uh, out of out of promise, the way that things are, and the way that things work, the way that things fit. That's what he wants to talk about. And he comes to this bond servant, and um, and I will try to move on after this. And master, I mean, strictly speaking, although you could, we can, I think, generalize this generally. Again, I don't want to go too far with this, but into just people you work with, I think it's okay to do that. It's the longest section here. A bond servant uh, in first century. Um, uh, Middle East was one who was working for a period of years, five, six, seven, eight years, differences with all that, and they would work for their freedom, and then at the end of that time, they would get their wage, sort of in a, almost on a cruel basis, uh, they, would, they would get their escrow, so to speak, emptied at the end of it. And he's just saying, like, everybody, like, mind the alignment. Onesimus, who's mentioned at the end of it, was a runaway slave. Um, this is what the letter of Philemon is all about. Um, I knew somebody named Onesimus once, by the way. It's a great man. Isn't that something? So, um, uh, big, 
booming African man. He was just 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 a titan. Um, uh, Onesimus was a runaway slave. As God's sovereignty would have it, uh, he ended up uh, with Paul, uh, and Paul converted him, and he turned it back around, and he sent Onesimus back to his uh, his master. He was a bond servant. He was working for his freedom, and he had the chance to run, and he did. As Paul says in First Corinthians, slaves obey your masters. Dulos is, you know, bondservant to pay masters. But if you can get your freedom, get it. I mean, Paul's not saying, like, slavery is great. He's not saying that at all. Um, but he is saying in this alignment, after the word of promise, um, uh, bosses, be kind. Run a good business. Um, be fair. Be equitable. Um, don't abuse your positions of power. And workers, bond servants, um, work as pleasing to the Lord. Work as if you're doing the work, work of the Lord. Vocation, as we spend time in the day in and day out of our lives, uh, show up on time. Work. You know, don't be eye pleasers. What a great phrase, right? Um, not by way of eye service. Work when you know that people are watching you. Um, work. Do, do what you say you were going to do because it honors the Lord. Um, this is the Protestant work ethic. I don't want to go too far on that, but it's an interesting, it's a, it's a compelling idea in terms of the community, the people of Christ in alignment coming together. Um, and then uh, we'll end here. Let me find a way to land the plane. Um, uh, verses 2 through 4 are really about you know the perseverance of prayer, laying hold of God's willingness more than overcoming His obstacle. We started there, and it's going to be one of the ways that we we, uh, we end there, and we speak um, verses 2 through 4, uh, our way of speaking to God about other people. But then verses 5 and 6 is a way that, that we move into the world and speak to other people about God. And we'll, we'll, we'll find a way to end here. People of Christ, walk in wisdom towards outsiders, making the best use of your time. Um, another way that's put is buying up every possible opportunity. It's like real estate. Buy up every available opportunity that you have as you're walking in wisdom towards outsiders, uh, making the best use of this time. Um, you never know. Be seasoned with salt. Um, be lights in the world. Remember your life is hidden with Christ in God. You know the experience of being salvationed. Not everyone does. Um, share that. Be the good infection as he wants to say. Go out into the world making the best use of the time. Let your speech always be gracious, seasoned with salt, so that you know how you ought to answer each person. Not one-size-fits-all Christianity, but engage. Engage with people. Um, uh, and the Lord will do his work done in his way through you um, with all that we've talked about here. Um, so that's as good a way to end the short series, Colossians, as any. Um, maybe a minute for a comment or two. Question. So let's pray. Lord, take these words um, feebly offered and, and, uh, and let the audacious hope of a, of a word of grace um, ruling over us uh, giving us a peace which passes understanding. Um, Lord, if it should be your will, let that work be done. Um, thank you for this day. Um, uh, be with us going forth. In Jesus' name, amen. amen. See you all soon.
You've been listening to audio from the Cathedral Church of the Advent. If you live in Birmingham or find yourself visiting, we hope you'll join us for one of our Sunday services. Find out more at adventbirmingham.org.